Well, before I pray, I just want to thank Andrew and Melissa uh, and Glenn and Amelia's absence. It is just amazing that the Lord continues to bless us with just so many excellent musicians that can bring glory to his name. Uh, we have an incredible music program here at Providence, and I, for one, thank God for it. Thank you for your service to us this morning. It, it really blessed my soul. Let us pray. Lord, we come here as the body of Christ to signify our unity in the gospel. It is the gospel alone that has saved us, and it is the gospel, Lord, that was communicated to us by the power of the Holy Spirit as he has regenerated our hearts. And Lord, even now, we ask that your spirit would come among us to create that dependence upon him as he feeds us through the very words that you have placed down on paper, that your spirit inspired holy men to write down. And Lord, may you use those words now to conform us to the image of your Son. We seek obedience not because it somehow merits us any more favor uh, before you. We seek it so that we might emulate Christ whom we love. And Lord, we pray that you would take that love, allow us to share it with others. That, Lord, we would recognize this is a love that's not from ourselves. It is a love that can only come from the one true holy God. And so, Lord, even though many thoughts would distract us now, we may be thinking about all of the different uh, things that are going on in our life. We pray, Lord, that you would help us in such a moment to persevere, to recognize that you are the one who is proving and working your power in us. So, Lord, feed us. Allow us to know that you have touched our hearts through your words this morning. We pray this in the finished work of Christ alone. Amen. Well, good morning. After our brief, uh, brief break to celebrate Graduation Sunday and Mother's Day, it's time to return to the book of Genesis. So please turn back to Genesis chapter 9 in your Bibles. Now, when we last left our central character, Noah, he had just stepped off the ark onto dry land, and this was after witnessing the destruction of the entire world with a flood, which wiped out every breathing thing that was not on the ark. Then the Lord commanded Noah and his sons to continue the divine mandate of being fruitful and subduing the earth as his vice regents, his representatives upon the land. And in response to having his life saved through the flood, the first thing that Noah does is build an altar and worship the Lord. And then God makes a covenantal promise to Noah that never again would he destroy the earth in such a fashion. And as a sign of that covenant, God puts rainbows in the sky to remind all of creation what he was capable of doing in wrath, but now withholds his judgment due to his righteous ones. Now, I've been all over the world in both hemispheres, and I've seen rainbows in every location. All mankind can see them, and whenever I do see them, I think of what God could bring upon all of us if by His grace He did not restrain His judgment. So I'd like to ask you, imagine yourself in this same scenario right now. You have just been through the most destructive force that has ever hit the earth, and you and your family have survived. 
All others have perished. They've been completely eradicated due to the Lord's anger at sin. And you're all alone, but you are alive. The Lord God of the universe promised that you are now safe from such destruction. The world has been given you to steward. You are literally king of the world or or whatever title you might want to call yourself, whether it be emperor or grand poobah or something. Your job is to care for the earth as God's image bearer. And unlike the barbarity of the previous world, God has now instituted a system of justice that if you take a life, then your life is forfeit. It would offer mankind protection from one another. God's goodness is on display once again in this fresh new world. Now imagine if that was you. What would you do in such a moment? Well, in verse 20 and 21, we see what Noah does. He executes his job to subdue the earth. The verse says, Noah became a man of the soil. It's a slight play on the words in Hebrew. Noah is an Adama of the Hadama, a man of the earth. The same phrase is used in Genesis chapter 2, verse 7, at Adam's creation, and also at chapter 5, verse 29, when Noah's father names him and pronounces that he is a man who will remove the curse from the earth. And what does this curse remover do? Well, he tills the soil to plant a vineyard so that he can grow grapes and drink wine. And then he gets so stinky drunk that he passes out naked in his tent. How fitting is that for someone who just survived the greatest catastrophe that the earth has ever seen? But let me remind you that such behavior fulfills three thematic principles in Genesis. There are three facts that recur over and over again in this book. You might want to write these down. I put a place for them in your outline for you. All right, so here they are. I'm going to go through them. Number one, anyone can sin. Number one, anyone can sin. This has been the case from the very beginning. The first man and woman were placed in an ideal environment. They had everything they could ever want. All the food they needed, fulfilling work, an intimate communion with the creator of the universe, and and also intimate communion with one another. The earth was created for them, and they had access to all of it with the exception of a single tree that God asked them not to eat of it because it would bring the curse of death on the earth. And then what do they do? In chapter 3, they disobey this single command and bring the contamination of sin into the world. Then Adam and Eve's first children, Cain and Abel, while they were restricted from the ideal garden, they still have some access to God. We see in chapter 4 that that they're allowed to present offerings to God. And God rejects Cain's offering, and he warns him that sin is seeking to control him. But instead of repenting and asking God why his offering was rejected, he decides to eliminate the competition and he murders his brother. God spares Cain's life and and instead he punishes him as an exile to wander the earth. And despite such mercy, Cain refuses to repent. Never once does he say, I am sorry. But instead of doing what the Lord commanded, to wander, he settles in one spot, he and his son build a city, and their offspring becomes more barbaric with each generation. 
The image bearer process begins again from the seed of the woman with Adam and Eve's next child, Seth. And we see his genealogy in chapter 5. And, and while we see traces of righteousness in Seth's descendants like Enoch and Lamech and Noah, chapter 6 reveals that even this line became corrupt as they intermarried with the Canaanites. It was so bad that by the time we arrive at chapter 5, verses 5 through 8, God has decided to eradicate the entire world with the exception of Noah. Out of all the inhabitants... Only Noah has found favor in God's eyes. And what does Noah do after being saved from such destruction due to sin? Noah decides to sin. From Adam and Eve to Cain to Seth to Noah, we see that anyone, including someone that according to chapter 6 verse 9, God calls righteous and blameless, can sin. One of the reasons I feel like I can trust the scriptures is that it never portrays its heroes as flawless, but demonstrates that they all can fall. We will see this again in godly people later on in Genesis, like Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Judah, and Joseph. Even the best of us can sin, which brings us to the next theme. Not only can or can anyone sin, but second, everyone does sin. Everyone does sin. While we might have the, or not have here, the revealed sin of every person here listed in the genealogies, we can see that the maxim of Romans 3.23 is true. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Every person does sin. All of us fail God. All of us contribute to the evil within the world in some manner. Even as a child, I remember lies that I told, ways that I tried to deceive others, selfishness where I wanted glory above another. You and I are no different from Adam or Noah. Everyone does sin. And the third theme throughout Genesis is because we all sin, we need the intercession of God. Because we all sin, we need the intercession of God. Unless God acts and intervenes, we deserve his condemnation and every consequence resulting from our sin. If God had immediately caused Adam and Eve to die after their disobedience, as they deserved, then we would have no hope of existence or the promised seed of the woman who would crush the head of the serpent. If God had not extended mercy and a new heir through Seth, then the sin of Cain would have destroyed us all. And if God had not saved Noah through the flood, then mankind would have ceased to exist. In each case, we see God's desire to deliver humanity from their sin, and yet we keep trying to mess that up. Eventually, God will have a chosen people from whom will come a Messiah to deliver us all. And the next events in Genesis chapter 9 will begin to plant the seeds of that plan. So it should not surprise us to see at verse 21 that Noah sins. Now to be sure, I want to be clear here. Because Baptists get a bad rap when it comes to alcohol sometimes here. The Bible does not say that the consumption of fermented drink is a sin. But it does say that the overconsumption of alcohol is a sin. Very clearly throughout the Bible, getting drunk and losing your faculties is a sin. 
and intentionally getting others drunk to where they lose their judgment so that you might take advantage of them is a sin as well. The Bible regularly condemns and looks unfavorably upon those who are drunk. Proverbs 23, uh, verse 20. Be not among drunkards or among gluttonous, or gluttonous uh, not gluttonous. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, that one caught me off guard, too. <laughs> Only my, my uh, gluten-free friends sitting over here uh, would be safe if that was the case. All right. I need to start over again. <laughs> be not among drunkards or among gluttonous eaters of meat, for the drunkard and the glutton will come to poverty and slumber will uh, clothe them with rags. Joel chapter 1, verse 5. Awake, you drunkards, and weep and wail, all you believers uh, of, uh, and drinkers of wine because of the sweet wine, for it is cut off from your mouth. The Apostle Paul warns Christians not to associate with other believers who are known drunkards in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 11. And he gives his reason why in chapter 6 of that same letter. He writes, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers, will inherit the kingdom of God. There are those among us that have addictive personalities, so it's unwise for them to even attempt to drink. And if there are those who prefer to to put a hedge around themselves to avoid alcohol altogether, which is what most Baptists encourage others to do in the temperance movement of the 20th century, then that should be commended according to conscience' sake. We should not pass judgment on the one that chooses to drink without becoming inebriated, nor should we pass judgment on the one who strictly refrains from drinking alcohol as their conscience dictates. But we cannot escape the fact that the Bible declares there is a line that must not be crossed, and Noah, becoming so inebriated that he lost his senses and passed out naked, clearly crossed that line. This image of Noah's indiscretion is used throughout later Hebrew literature to become the emblem of shame. Lamentations chapter 4, verse 21. Rejoice and be glad, O daughter of Edom, you who dwell in the land of Uz. But you, to you also the cup shall pass. You shall become drunk and strip yourself bare. Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 15. Woe to him who makes his neighbors drink. You pour out your wrath and make them drunk in order to gaze upon their nakedness. This is a case of Noah utterly blowing it. Yes, we might could understand after such trauma of seeing the world's destruction that Noah used alcohol to seek out comfort and escape, but that does not excuse the sin. And sin will be perpetuated through the line of Noah despite witnessing such mass destruction due to rebellion. And we see this uh, perpetuation of sin through the actions of Noah's son, Ham. When the story here is introduced in verse 18, we already have some foreshadowing on by the narrator here who highlights that Ham was the father of Canaan. Now, we need to remember at the time that Moses collected these oral traditions and he recorded them on paper was during the period of the 40 years in the wilderness. 
So I need to pause here for just a brief moment and provide just a tiny historical interlude. I'm a historian, I can't help it, all right? This was when Moses led the Jews out of slavery in Egypt, and he led them to God's promised land of Canaan, and it was filled with the descendants of Canaan. If you take a look at chapter 10, verses 15 through 20 there, you can see the land was filled by the Jebusites and the Hivites, and especially the Amorites. And when they arrived at the border of Canaan, Moses sent 12 spies to check on the land, and they were supposed to take possession of it. And if you remember it, 10 of the 12 spies said that the land was filled with giants, and there was no way that they could take possession of it, even with God's help. Like the little song says, remember, 10 were bad, 2 were good. Okay, I hope you all were raised with that. If not, you need to be at vacation Bible school in a couple of weeks, all right? So God made the Jewish nation to wander through the wilderness for 40 years until that generation died out, and a new generation would have faith that they could take the land with God's help. So the fact that Canaan is mentioned should make us perk up, just like it would have the original audience when Moses composed this book during that time of the wandering here. Noah's passed out drunk in his tent, and according to verse 22, Ham, his youngest son, enters into the tent and saw his father's nakedness and went back and told his brothers. Now the Hebrew word for saw means literally to leer at. It's the same word that's used in Song of Songs, chapter 1, verse 6, and in chapter 6, verse 11. It's used when Solomon and his lover are gazing at one another. Now, there are some scholars that think this looking was, was somehow sexual in nature. I'm not convinced of that. It seems a stretch because the word is used in other instances of Scripture outside of love. Rather, my understanding of what is happening is that Ham entered the tent saw that his dad was drunk and naked, and his gaze lingered to the point that he didn't turn away from embarrassment and find something to cover his dad up. Most likely, he stood there for a moment and said, look at that old coot, drunk and passed out. And then he went out and told his brothers what he saw, probably mockingly. I believe this due to his brother's next actions. Rather than leave their old man in that position, they show him respect by immediately returning to the tent to cover Noah up. And they do so in such a fashion not to look upon their father's shame, but to honor him by not ever having that image in their minds. They were intentional about not extending the shame of their dad. The text doesn't tell us how, but after Noah slept it off and woke up, he knew what Ham had done. Notice the text says, to him, in verse 24. I imagine while Noah was still in a stupor, he probably opened his eyes, saw Ham standing there, heard his jeers to his brothers outside his tent. He is just too inebriated to do anything about it at the moment. We also discover that despite the birth order given in verse 18, and also later in chapter 10, verse 1, Noah calls Ham his youngest son. That may be that Noah considers Ham to be the lowest on the totem pole. But now we have the first words out of Noah's mouth in the entire Bible. And it's a curse upon Canaan. We might wonder, why does Noah curse Canaan and not his father? After all, it was Ham that committed the sin. We learn in chapter 6, or chapter 10, verse 6, that Canaan is the youngest son of his father. Ham is now considered 
Noah's youngest son in the birth order. And just as Noah's youngest son was a disappointment to him, so too will be Ham's youngest son. And while it's not written as a command yet in the God-ordered world, we are to honor our fathers and mothers. Children, you hear it? Honor your fathers and mothers. Parents have the responsibility of instructing you in the ways of God. And if we disrespect them in that instruction, then we do reap what we sow. Ham violated that. And just as he was a thorn in Noah's side, so too will be his youngest son. Canaan and his descendants will be cursed to be subjugated to his kinsmen. And not just his family, but even to his kinsmen's servants. And to emphasize that the descendants of Ham will be in an inferior position to his brother, Noah next pronounces a blessing upon Shem and Japheth with Shem as the oldest receiving the greater portion. It's interesting that Noah says, blessed be Yahweh, using God's covenantal name, blessed be Yahweh, who is the God of Shem. Shem's blessing is that Yahweh will specifically be his God. And for Japheth, he doesn't use the covenantal name, but says, may God enlarge Japheth. Japheth's blessing is that his descendants will expand and spread out. And that's nice, but Shem is specifically assigned Yahweh as his God. The same God that saved the family through the flood, but for both of them, the descendants of Canaan will now be considered inferior to the others. Now, I need to say this, because it's horrible. My 19th century, or, or 16th century to 19th century forebears use the curse of Canaan to justify their enslavement of Africans. They saw the curse as extending to Ham's entire family, not just Canaan. And from chapter 10, verse 6, we see that Ham also fathered Egypt and Cush and Put, which were all North African nations. Therefore, they would commonly say God wanted white people to enslave black people. That was a horrifying interpretation and completely inaccurate, and cannot be justified in any way from the text. It is a case of sinful man reading into a passage what they want to see rather than what it actually says. And I, for one, and I am deeply ashamed of my Baptist forebears who tried to justify the heinous sin of slavery, and especially to do so by manipulating the text of Scripture. That is inexcusable. But I need to put it in context. Remember, anyone can sin, and everyone does sin. And while we should never cancel out whatever good may be done by them, we should be deeply ashamed of their actions, and we should acknowledge it. They don't get a pass. To conclude, Noah will live an additional 350 years after the flood. And Lord willing, next week we will see that many of his descendants would have known Noah personally. But so closes his story in Genesis. Now let's just take a moment to see what we might learn from this passage of the latter days of Noah. Like we saw with our, our themes, anyone can sin, even Noah. We should expect it because everyone does sin. 
And that becomes apparent as we see that truth just extend throughout the line of Noah. But what about God's intervention? He already cleansed the earth with a worldwide flood, but with sin still continuing after the flood, does that mean that the promise of the seed of the woman in Genesis chapter 3.15 is negated? God saved humanity through Noah, and yet that sin that still brings death is prevalent. The curse is still at work. But our text reveals that Shem will acknowledge Yahweh as his God. And yet, even through Shem, we shall see that sin still exists and corrupts, and his descendants would need God to intervene with mercy. And he will. From Shem will come one named Abram, who will become Abraham, the father of nations. And God will work through Abraham to bring about Isaac, and through Isaac, Jacob, and his 12 sons, which will become the 12 tribes of Israel. And they will become enslaved by Ham's other son's descendants, the Egyptians. And God will call Moses from among Israel to lead God's chosen people back to their promised land, which was currently inhabited by the Canaanites. And they are afraid to face them, So God has them spend 40 years in the wilderness where Moses has to remind them that this nation is inferior to their own, not due to the color of their skin, nor their ethnicity, or even the fact that they are more sinful, but because they are not Yahweh's chosen people. He is not the God of the Canaanites. Therefore, they can be defeated. And the next time they're at the border of Canaan, they win victory after victory and conquer the land just as God promised. And yet, sin continues to thwart them. Despite having godly leadership like Joshua and Samuel and David and Solomon. Why? Because anyone can sin and everyone does sin. So to be delivered out of our sin, we need God to intervene. And so he does. From the Hebrew Hebrew people, he brings his one and only begotten son, Jesus the Messiah. Robin, the, the gentle healer that came to the town of our souls to bring healing. And the son of God intervenes in a radical way. He exchanges his life for ours. At the cross, he receives the full wrath from God that we deserve for our sinful disobedience. And not only that, he gives us his righteous standing before the Father so that when the Father looks upon us, he does so as though he is looking upon his Son. And how does he feel about his Son? He loves his son unconditionally. He dotes on the son. Like we saw last week, the son has every spiritual blessing. And when we place our faith in what Christ did on our behalf, and only in that, we receive the same spiritual standing before God the Father. I was at my mom's uh, house for a couple of days this past week. And I actually, I I drove down and I passed by the church that I attended as a young child. And sadly, it has become theologically liberal. But on the marquee, it says, 
You are God's favorite person. You are God's favorite person. Now, I I know they're trying to be positive, but it's a false message. Even if you're somewhat likable like Noah, God has only one favorite person, and that is his son, Jesus. And for the one who receives Christ as his Savior and receives Christ's righteousness, this is how God looks upon you. He doesn't see your sinful heart. He sees the righteousness of his son, his favorite person. So, friend, have you learned the lesson? Any of us can sin. And if we're honest, every one of us has sinned. We are all rebels, enemies before the Lord. We are all guilty before a holy God. Therefore, we must acknowledge that we cannot save ourselves from our sin. We are mired in it. Therefore, you need someone outside of yourself to intervene. You must quit trying to earn God's affection. You must quit looking at sin as though there are big sins or little sins, and perhaps you can do enough positive things in the world to balance that. You cannot barter your way into heaven. You must simply submit and acknowledge, I am useless when it comes to digging myself out of sin. Therefore, God, I I need you to intervene. I need you to do what I cannot do myself. Save me. And you must believe that in this way, this specific way. You must say, I understand that you sent your son to do precisely that. And I'm going to trust in what he has done. And you bank on that. And you rest in that. It might seem that your sin is overwhelming, but the redemption of the Son of God is sufficient. It is enough. And Christian, we just saw the blameless, righteous Noah blow it. I imagine you too probably blew it at least once this week. I failed multiple times. Multiple times. Don't fall back into thinking, well, I'll make it up with more right behavior. This time I'm going to be consistent in it. No, 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 no. Don't do that. Cling to Christ all the more. Rest on the promise that just as he said he would, that he would save you, just as he saved Noah and Israel and David and any of the cloud of witnesses that have gone before us. The seed of the woman did come through Jesus, and your faith should be rock solid in that alone. Not your personal actions, but in what Christ has done. He wants you to rest in that alone. That way he receives all the glory, not only for your salvation initially, but in keeping you saved all the more. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, (laughs) I am so grateful for the Scriptures. If all of these people, Lord, who you call to yourself 
had lived perfect lives and then even lived perfect lives after you called them, I would despair and be without hope because, Lord, I'd be the first to confess among my brothers and sisters here. I blow it all the time. But, Lord, let me remember my salvation, both currently and whatever I've done in the past, is not based on anything that I do. It is based completely upon what your Son, the Son of God, Jesus Christ, has done. And Lord, when I think about the magnitude of how badly I sin, and I think about what Jesus did on my behalf, I am utterly in awe. Can it really be that the Son of God would die for me? Your word tells me you are a God that never lies, so it must be true. So allow me, Lord, to be strengthened in my faith that Jesus, the Son of God, died for me. I pray for my brothers and sisters in this room, Lord, who may just be feeling the oppression of this world. I pray, too, Lord, that they'd be strengthened to know Jesus, the Son of God, has died for me. And yes, you still love me, God. And Lord, I pray for that one that is searching for you right now, wondering, could you love one such as me? That they would turn their heart to Jesus and see what he has done and claim it as their own. Only your spirit can do that. So come, Holy Spirit, and work among us. We pray this in the finished work of God, your son. Amen.